Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray with you as we prepare for our weekly dive into the deep and uncharted waters that make up the game of golf. Lots of professional golf to talk about this week, partly because Jordan Smith has made that game somewhat more interesting again, and partly because our guest this week is one of the few who still regularly covers happenings on the world's tours. John Huggan will join us in just a few moments from his snowbound base in Scotland. But first, to the somewhat warmer climate that is Sydney and the sprawling complex that is Sydney Podcast Studios, where we find co-host and connoisseur of all things golf, Adrian Logue. Logue, first for us in quite a while. The golf's actually on the TV in the background while we record, yep, such is the pulling power of Jordan Spieth. That's right. We're keeping one eye on it to watch Jordan Spieth and try not to be too offended by the amount of desert golf we've had to watch <laughs> the last few weeks. But Spieth makes it all good, doesn't he? He well, he Just did so watchable. until he dropped three behind. We'll try, we'll try and leave out the live commentary as we go, play by play. But it's not been going the way that we might have hoped for those who are Spieth fans. Quite remarkable the reaction this has got, isn't it, uh, Spieth? I will talk about it with uh, with Huggy. Let's bring him in now, back to the podcast, all the way to the other side of the world, where we find golf writer extraordinaire and now podcaster in his own right, John Huggan. Huggy's one of the few remaining golf riders who regularly covers the European Tour, though he's also proving a fabulous interviewer in his newish role as part-time host of Golf Australia Magazine's The Thing About Golf podcast. Huggy, who said you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Looking forward to the catch-up. Well, well, you know better, Rod Murray, because uh, you've talked me through an unbelievable amount of technical jargon that I had no idea about until I spoke to you. So, well done you. No, no, well done you. Huggy now gets his email on his laptop, Logue, which is remarkable. It's a a huge advancement. No, you are. And doing a fabulous job. Great reaction to the Laura Davies podcast. Those who haven't listened as yet, can't have listened to the thing about golf. Huggy's done some brilliant interviews, but he's one with Laura. And I thought particularly Huggy, and a couple of other people have said it to me, when she had to go off and tend to the dog, I considered editing that out. Wasn't it? But I thought, you know what? That's a bit of sport. <laughs> she was off tending to her sick dog, Murphy, I think it was called. Murphy? Um, yes. Yeah, I think so. Might have the uh, the big collar on. So, fantastic. How you been, Huggy? You, you you are literally snowbound there at the moment, aren't you? You, you just told us you had to go and dig the driveway. We, yeah, this afternoon I had a happy sort of hour and a half um, digging away so that we could get one of the cars out of the garage. So, we've, it's only been maybe four or five inches, but... Uh, there's more forecast over the next couple of days, unfortunately. So, uh, not that it makes much difference at the moment because you can't go anywhere anyway. Anywhere, so. anyway, yeah. It's just such an unthinkable scenario for us, isn't it? Like, yeah. Going to be trapped in the house by the weather. Mm. We just can't comprehend it here in Australia. There's no part of Australia where that's the case. Yeah, and, and we've said it before, but it's just such a shock to Australians. I think that golf course is closed. Well, the, the notion that you couldn't yeah. play golf for half of the year yeah. is just <laughs> extraordinary. It's a seasonal sport. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> All madness. Uh, Huggy, the, uh, Logue touched on it there. I guess he mentioned desert golf. We're looking at the, the scenes coming from the Phoenix Open. You, of course, have, would have written your piece already, no doubt, on Dustin Johnson getting his second win in Saudi Arabia. What's it like covering the tour these days? You're stuck there in Scotland, snowbound, as we said. How do you do it? Uh, well, the European Tour, to, to be fair, are, are very good. Um, we go on the... Microsoft Teams, they have it set up every week where we can request interviews with players and they, they don't bring in the winner. And we can, you know, actually see the, as today it was Dustin Johnson, obviously, and we can, we can talk to them and ask them questions. And, you know, it's not quite the same as being there, obviously, because you don't get the wee bit of a uh, couple of minutes afterwards. Um, so you really, anything, you if you ask a good question, everybody gets the answer, unfortunately. Yeah, that's exactly right. Part of that, uh, this is a 
bit of a media thing. Sorry, like working media That's thing. That's right. Yeah. There's nothing like being on site, is there, Huggy? That's where you actually find the stories. You, you, you can cover a tournament from remotely, the, the base, but you can't do proper reporting if you're not on the ground. No. Well, you certainly can't separate yourself from the competition. Um, you're stuck, as I said, with you know, everybody's getting the same information, basically. Yeah. You would think that in the bigger picture, I never really thought about this, but it's, it's not ideal for the two. We've talked about this before, I suppose. The two are like it that way. It's very vanilla and they get to control everything. It's not good for them, though, is it, Huggy? Not long term, no. I mean, I, I, we've had this discussion before, and it it makes. It, I've never understood the the tours, especially the PGA tours, controlling attitude to this. Um, you need a bit of controversy, a bit of spice, a bit of edge to get people interested. Um, you know, you talked about Jordan Spieth a few minutes ago. I mean, he's the perfect example. I mean, he's been playing so badly for the last three and a half years almost that it's it's a huge story. But, but you know, if you were to ask the PGA tour about you know, this is maybe an exaggeration, but a few months ago, how, how's Jordan Spieth playing? Oh, Jordan's playing wonderfully. Yeah. They would no doubt <laughs> be the answer. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Although there's something else going on with Spieth, don't you reckon, Logan? It's interesting that he's uh, up there this week after last week. You've got a white hat, black hat thing happening, haven't you? He is the white hat to Patrick Reed's black hat in the, the minds of most <laughs> fans, is he not? Indeed, yeah. Um, of course, Patrick Reed's not having a particularly good week. Oh, I didn't have a good week over at Saudi Arabia. Um, but no doubt. Oh, actually, I wonder if he uh, knocked back appearance money with uh, Saudi Arabia. He just goes, oh, no, you know, I'm good. Yeah, I like what you guys are doing. You don't no, need, you don't no, need no he didn't do that. No. But, yeah, that uh, whole incident last week. And the Huggy's right. You know, the tour's position on Patrick Reed oh, is exactly they, the same as their position on Jordan Spieth. They doubled down, actually, I thought, the tour. They they were aggressively supportive of him last week, which was almost a little bit unusual. I wonder what that policy is about. They didn't care who they threw under the bus last no, week to right. protect Patrick Reed. Though. First it was McElroy. Rory's ultimately, like, everything makes sense now with that Rory situation and the, and the steward treading on the ball. Uh, but you didn't see an announcement of that from the tour. No. Rory had to mention it himself in his press conference. And uh, they, they released these videos and people praised that as being, oh, a new era of openness from the tour. But the video, they only released the videos because they thought they looked good for Reed because it showed him Doing the not knowing that the ball bounced. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, it was pretty. Is there, uh, is there something in all stuff. that huggy or are we in the back and to the left camp now, me and Logue? No, no. <laughs> the Zach Ruder film. It's hard to dispute anything you've just said. I mean, the the tour will do pretty much anything to, to make just about any kind of incident vanilla at the end of the day. I wonder why. I mean, I, I kind of get it in one of those but as golfers, you'd think there'd be some golfers there, wouldn't you, inside the tour. This was the same thing that happened at the A&A with the whole wall behind the 18th green debacle. Every single person in the world who plays golf, the minute they saw that photo, they said, well, that doesn't look right. But nobody at the tour seemed to argue. There must be golfers there. How do they lose this perspective, do you reckon? It's all about image, Rod. It's, uh, again, you know, we've, we've talked about this a million times, but I will never, ever get my head around the fact that it's an insult to our intelligence mm. for the, the, the way that the golfers are portrayed as these, you know, whiter-than-white knights in shining armour, you know, veritable saints, you know, who are capable of nothing, you know, anything bad is just never is never happens on the tour my goodness how, how could you possibly imagine such a thing i mean come on that's not that's not real life 
these these guys are just like any other group in society. There's a bunch of good guys at one end, and there's most of the people who are sort of okay in the middle, and there's a few, you know, knobheads at the other end. Yeah. Can we say knobheads on the on the podcast? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Now that you're a podcaster, absolutely, you've got the experience under your belt, Huggy. You can, uh, you can, you can get away with it. At least the golf riders are all good people, Huggy. There's not a bad one amongst us, uh, obviously. Uh, steady, steady. <laughs> yeah, let's not run down that list. Let's, qu- let's quickly go to Saudi Arabia. Was there anything interesting about Dustin Johnson winning in the desert, or is Saudi Arabia the interesting tournament because of the political back and forth and the whole conundrum that that throws up. I know Paul Casey reversed his decision this year, which was interesting, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of thrown my hands up now. I mean, they've, they've been going there for three years and it's not going to change. I mean, they've just about everybody's made it quite clear that they can be bought by Saudi Arabia and the, the vast amounts of money that they seem to have. Um, so the, the story for me this week was, was more golf. I mean, I stuck to the golf and the, the kind of theme that came out of it for me was that uh, this was a you know, bit of a message-sending operation for Dustin Johnson. I mean, he, he played beautifully tee to green, but I tell you what, he putted like an absolute idiot and still won mm-hmm. by two. I mean, Wayne Riley, who was walking around for Sky Sports, I mean, he pretty much summed it up. If if he'd putted just kind of half decent, he would have won by eight. Um, although, to be fair, he wasn't the only one complaining about the, the putting at the end. Justin Rose was the same, and Tony Finau... The unfortunate Tony Fino, who finished second uh, alongside Rose, was the same. They, they, all three of them were singing from the same hymn sheet in terms of the putting. And the greens were apparently, the poor wee souls were having to putt on greens that were slower than normal, mm. whatever oh, that you. means. This is and, uh, you know, and some of the pin positions did look a wee bit dodgy. But um, well, other than that, I mean, it didn't seem like anybody putted well. But Johnson was, it was particularly noticeable with Johnson simply because he hit it close so often mm. and just hold nothing. He is a freakish talent who we should be talking about the way we talk about Jordan Spieth, and yet somehow he's just not as interesting to watch, as even though he's an unbelievable physical talent. Yeah, he's he, yeah. I mean, he's God, he's, very, he's he is very impressive. He does. He seems to do everything well. Well, apart from putt today, but um, that that wasn't normal. I mean, he's clearly the best player in the world at the moment. And as I say, I think he sent a message today to anybody paying attention. The top players would be thinking, "Oh my goodness, is this guy is this guy really beatable? If he's even close to his, his A game, as they call it, I mean, he doesn't need his, his to be playing at his absolute best to win now. I think most of the time, unless somebody you know like Rory or Justin Thomas or the guys near him in the borough rankings, if they have a particularly good week and he plays you know eighty percent of his potential, he's probably going to lose. But how often does that happen? I mean, he's, he's to me, he's the guy to beat every time he tees up now. He's, he's the first one to be like Tiger since Tiger, I reckon. Mm. <laughs> the, well, the, apparently he's won, he's won 16 of his last 100 starts, Dustin Johnson, which is a pretty high percentage, what percentage for is a that? golfer. Yeah. <laughs> But nobody's nobody's like Tiger, come on. No, 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 I get that. But he's the first one I think we can honestly say he doesn't have to be at his best to win. It's pretty competitive at the top. The the names you've just rolled out there, McElroy, Thomas, Kepke, if they play their best, they're hard to beat. He might be the one in that group who you'd say he doesn't have to play his best, he can still beat them. That's And that's unusual. It's been since Tiger, since we had a player that you could say that about, I think. Um, And consistent over many years as well. I think when you look at... mm. Uh, when you look at careers, the the guys who who break through that Patrick Harrington eighteen month oh. barrier, 
and funnily enough, Patrick, I guess, is kind of one of them, although he has had that distinctive peak to his career. But the, those guys who can win year in, year out, and, you know, the it's the tired thing about Dustin Johnson that he, you know, wins every season. But, you know, that's an impressive stat um, yeah. to do it over many, many years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's only a handful of players who you can say that about um, that don't really have that dip. And there's a lot to like about him as a golfer these days Yeah, in particular. Like, yeah. he goes – he's sort of humble. Yep. And just goes about his business. And Those tears at the Masters did an awful lot for Dustin Johnson in Myers. I think I like. I think a lot of other people probably went the same. I didn't expect to see that from him, and it was nice, and it was uh, it was sort of heartwarming to see. Huggy, I want to take you all the way back to 2011, and you and I were out at the Lakes Presidents Cup the following week, watching the Australian Open. We watched Dustin Johnson at the 17th hole hit the most remarkable little bump and run shot into a hill, up and over, down the other side, down to the flag. We couldn't decide at the time whether he'd meant it or he'd flubbed it and just got away with it. What do you reckon 10 years down the track? Um, well, I'm, I'm giving him credit at this point. Uh, <laughs> I think I am too. Uh, you, know, he's, uh, you know, we're talking about the guy who's clearly the best yeah. player in the world right now and has been for some time. Yeah. You know, he's uh, he's totting up the number of weeks at number one, which is, to me, is the, the true test of how good somebody is. I mean, Greg Norman... One of the things people forget about Greg Norman is just how many weeks he spent at number one. I think he's 331 second to, to Tiger. Yeah. So. Yes, that's right. Second only to Tiger, with about half uh, as it is. Tiger's at 600 and something. Is there is the one, not a criticism of Johnson, international golf is fairly one-dimensional these days for the most part, Huggy. Uh, has, is Johnson the player who can also do what Tiger did and adapt to uh, a windy open championship course or test? And put himself in the frame. Well, I think he's he's. I, I quite fancy his chances uh, this year at Royal St George's. If you cast your mind back to 2011 mm-hmm. again, uh, when Darren Clark won the last time they were there, uh, Dustin Johnson kind of threw it away. I mean, I don't know if you remember the. I do remember one iron. The one iron he hit out of bounds on the 14th. 2011, Huggy. It was a two iron. Thank you very much. Two iron. <laughs> we were already <laughs> well past the one iron. By yeah, then. well, yeah, that's true. I should have known better. But um, but yeah, so he was right there. On you know what it's nobody's favourite golf course. Let's be honest, but uh, he's got as I say, he's got some history there. He's going to go there, you know, the, as things stand at the moment. He's going to go there as the favourite. He's, he's going to be there as the best player. So mm-hmm. he must have a good chance, you would yeah. think. And he was it was blowing that year too. That 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 final yeah. round, it was really really hard. I remember being very impressed. That was the first time I was really impressed by Ricky Fowler as well. Yeah. He played yeah. that yeah. particular game. He played really, with really uh, Tom Watson the first couple of rounds, I think. Maybe. Yeah. And, yeah, and Watson was very impressed with him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to be interested to see how Reed plays in the Open. I'm sure Reed's going to contend in in the Open. I think Huggy years. summed up. He went Reed. all right at Carnoustie, I think, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think Huggy summed up Reed beautifully in your column last week. Huggy you said he's he'll go down in history as a great player, but not a great golfer. So he mm. he's every chance to contend at an open because, in terms of actually playing the game of golf, he's a, he's magnificent to watch, isn't he, Huggy? I know you've seen him up close. It's a thing yeah, of well, beauty to watch him. That 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 is the the great sadness, mm. Patrick Reed, for mm. me. I mean, I, I watch him. I love watching him play. Mm. I mean, he's a, he's wonderful to watch. He's a breath of fresh air at the at the top level at the moment, given the, how many robotic, one dimensional kind of players there are. I mean, he he's a he's a proper golfer. I mean, he hits shots, and he loves uh, the links golf. I, I I approached him at Gullen, maybe what two or three years ago at the Scottish Open at the end of a round, and just to to have a brief what I thought would be a brief chat with him about you know why he was there and blah blah blah. And he was saying all the right things, but 
he was still there 25 minutes later mm-hmm. telling me wh- how much he loved the Lynx Golf. And he, and he explained it beautifully. I mean, he, he gets it. And he loved the challenge. He loved the variety of it. He, he loved all the, the things that make Lynx Golf great. It was right up his street. So I'm with you. I think that he'll certainly contend in opens, but whether he wins one or not, who knows? He went and actually bought a set, set of Hickory clubs. Did he? Whether it was that year or the year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, don't make me like him. Oh, well, he's. This is the thing about those- him. He's this bizarre Jekyll and Hyde sort of character. He does get the golf. What impresses me the most, I think, about Reed, or what sort of. It's such a. It's almost an optical illusion. I remember this happening at the President's Cup. I was sort of standing on the practice range. Adam Scott walked past. Dustin Johnson walked past. Patrick Cantlay walked past. Mm-hmm. They all walked past. A- athlete, and then, athlete, athlete. And then along comes Patrick Reed. Stubby little arms. Everything about him <laughs> says non-athlete. He's nothing like the rest of us. And yet he put a golf club in his hands, Huggy. Like Seve, he immediately looked right. Yeah. Whether you know anything about golf or not, he looked right as soon as he picked up a golf club. Just bizarre. Yeah. He's an artist amidst a crowd of scientists. Yeah. That's what he is. Yeah, indeed. What about desert golf, uh, Logue? <laughs> Do we like desert golf? I, I don't. No, I, I think it, there's no place for golf in the desert. Mm-hmm. It's You can just see what a distortion of the environment it is. Um, the aerial shots are confronting. There, there really is. Like, it just, it cannot, they're, they're just, there's so much water involved in that. At least desert golf in this form that we're seeing it, in these two events this week is not right. You can't just lay out this carpet of grass and have the manicured uh, heavy rough that they've got there. It, it just doesn't make sense. But there might be some form of desert golf that does make sense. Like in Australia here, we've got Alice Springs Golf mm-hmm. Club, which uh, does have the very green fairways, but um, you know they've got a reliable... And a lot of these places have reliable water sources, we should, we should mention. But... Nonetheless, it just looks a bit ridiculous. And they have to ship in sand as well, which <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know. Like, you know, they ship in sand. So Ship in sand to use in the desert. Huggy, in that broader image we discuss here, the, the problem that golf has outside of the golf world, a non-golfer looking at an aerial of the golf course in Saudi Arabia, you could not argue with them, could you, if they said to you, that doesn't belong there? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious. I mean, the, but the Emirates Club was like that, you know, it, 30-odd years ago in Dubai. I mean, I was there probably mid-90s for the first time, and it's been said many times, but there was there was nothing, nothing out there literally. other than the Hard Rock Cafe across the road. Um, it's long gone, and there's now, I'm sure everybody's seen the pictures of the, the skyline that you get, particularly off the, the now iconic, that great word, the iconic eighth tee at the Emirates Club where they drive from a high tee with the skyscrapers in the background. Um, so who knows what's going to develop in Saudi Arabia over the next three years. The kingdom. Decades. Sorry to correct um, you there. You, you haven't got the right marketing speak there, Huggy. <laughs> we'll come to the about it in just a moment. I reckon, Huggy, every year when the Dubai tournament's on and the tour does it, and so do a lot of like Ken Brown's a regular offender, for want of a better term, the before and after photos of when it was nothing and what it is now. Yeah, yeah. I can't see any of the positives in that. I'm horrified by what they've done in the desert. I can't help but think to myself, why is that a good thing? Um, well, what what yeah, I, I need to take some specifics here because uh, I mean the, you talk about the water. I mean water is going to be a a bigger and bigger issue for mm-hmm. golf in general probably over the next decades. But the, I, I think I'm right in saying they've got a desalination plant right next door to the Emirates Club. If it's whether it's still there, it was certainly there at the beginning. Uh, I don't know, but um, so that's that's a plus. But I, I I need some specifics on why you. I'm not saying I disagree with you, but I need to know why exactly you guys don't like desert golf. 
I think it doesn't belong. It doesn't appeal to my eye, but that's changed over time too. I've become more and more uh, enamoured with Lynx golf as an aesthetic. But there's something about yeah. desert golf that just doesn't – it shouldn't be there. I'm not one who says golf belongs everywhere. I think mm-hmm. that's a mistake At uh, least that golf has made. I don't think it should be there in the form that we consistently see it because the the way they present these courses is as – Look at what we can do. Mm. You know, this is us Triumph, triumphing over over, nature, yeah. over the desert. We can mm. even grow these incredibly, you know, this monoculture of grass here of all places. We can do that, uh, and of course, even to get the the soil base for that, mm. they need to ship that soil in and top. You know, the, they top off the whole thing. And then Andy Staples disagreed with us when we put that to him, though. About Net, desert golf? Yeah, Andy's a good guy. And we, we talked about the golf courses in Arizona, and he was quite strident in sort of suggesting they had their place. Uh, not so necessarily Maybe. environmentally, but certainly economically, he, he suggested Oh, that. For, for sure, yeah. But I, I'm yet to see an example of desert golf which looks like it belongs in there. Um, so th- maybe there is a form of it, but it just seems like the temptation of every owner of a resort like that or a government that commissions one of these things just feels like they're obliged to create the same, to stamp out the same thing that every other country and every other resort owner has done where it's this triumph of man over nature. And uh, that, that's that's what I find offensive about it, I guess. So, not offensive. I don't care that much about it. But Broadly, I don't think it's a good ad for the game. If, you, if you're in the business of trying to uh, promote the game as – having, you know, potential environmental benefits and societal benefits. I don't think Desert Golf helps you sell that message because it is so incongruous uh, to look at, that for mine. but uh, it's, just, anyway. it, it, it's very appealing to a very a, wide that, audience. Huggy? Sorry, I was just going to say that that's less evident when you go to the Emirates Club in Dubai now. I mean, I've, I've been going there for years and walking around that golf course now, you you wouldn't know you were in the desert. In fact, you're you're not really in the desert. You're now on the edge of the city. Yeah, you know mm-hmm. it's it's spread out so much that you're you're it's pretty much surrounded by housing and roads. So the fact that to call it desert golf might be a misnomer these Maybe. days because it's it's no longer in the middle of the desert. It's it's on, it's in the city of Dubai. Turn the desert into the suburbs, which is uh, yeah, man triumphing over nature. Just back to Saudi Arabia quickly. I didn't want the to kingdom. Get- the kingdom didn't want to go too deeply into the to the politics of it, but I forgot to mention. I sent this to you the other week. Like, had two separate approaches, Huggy, one from the production house and one from a PR company, wanting us to advertise for money on this podcast, the new podcast that has been produced for Saudi Golf, which I thought was interesting. Um, that whole political sports washing sort of notion uh, there it is right there i don't know if any of the other pod i imagine they approached a bunch of podcasts i got two separate emails asking they were running a three-week campaign they wanted us to do a host red ad for the new saudi golf podcast have they ever listened to the podcast do you think? not sure <laughs> That's- not sure what do you reckon about that huggy it's how deep well, it I'm not, surpri- I'm not surprised. I mean, uh, I the, was it two years ago? Uh, I, could, I could have been there. I, uh, there was free trips on offer left and right for journalists, and there was still two or three of them there one, this year. One way? And one, one went <laughs> all the way from America, uh, unbelievably, to be there, and I'm sure it was all expenses paid. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a tough road to start down this. We, again, we've touched on this before. I mean, where would where would you, where do you draw on the, the list of places would you not go if you started with Saudi Arabia? But all all I can say for myself is that 
I draw the line somewhere short of Saudi Arabia, um, which is where I. Know, but then, you, but then, where do you stop? Well, that's right. Well, I came to the same conclusion, and I rejected both offers to have the thing on there. But I did. I must say, some people might not agree with this. There is a question then there about uh, whose job is it to censor what is and isn't available in the public space. Is that our? Is that my role here? I'm comfortable with the notion of not having gotten involved in that project well you, you can take the pragmatic view that you know um, you can again kind of throw your hands up and say well whatever i do here it's not going to make much difference mm. in the in the big picture um so should i just take the money i could have and, paid you for your appearance today if i did huggy yeah well there you go <laughs> and, uh, there's, there's definite pluses to this then <laughs> but uh, but yeah or or do you you know listen to your conscience and say no thanks very much um we'll pass it's you know it's each to their own when it comes to that and and the, you know again no matter what you do they're going to get their message out there somewhere yeah. somebody mm. will take the money mm. indeed I was just it, interested in the notion of them using podcasting as a tool as the other thing that interests me in a very mild way like well I'm interested in the irony of it because I, I think you'd be a pretty brave person to have your own podcast within Saudi Arabia because you just you just say the wrong thing and you could be you know. The the human rights issues that they're currently um, most that I find most offensive at the moment is they've got a lot of summary executions going on there. Then uh, this is you know it's not an exaggeration. They're killing people um, with no trials or just uh, poorly conducted trials um, and holding people activists hostage. Uh, activists who were um, uh, fighting for women's rights and women's rights has improved there. There's a um, a pretty offensive concept of ownership over women uh, there, which uh, is is changing gradually. Um, but the activists who fought for that are still imprisoned, um, and and of course, the, you know, the morality of the of the free press, I think, is incredibly important, as we've seen in the United States over the last four years. Just how it can start to teeter if the free press is questioned, or. Um, and you know that they've got a solution for that in Saudi Arabia, where they you know they'll just chop you up into pieces. So that that irony of advertising and podcasts, which are in a region of the world that are uh, able to say what they they think, uh, as opposed to inside Saudi Arabia, where you'd be terrified of saying the wrong thing. Hmm. It's complex stuff. Aren't yeah, you, you just have to have a, just even a five minute perusal of the Amnesty International website and search Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's horrifying. It really is. It's, I, I, I can't get my head around why anybody would go there, but that's just me. Yeah. Well, the European tour is certainly aligned there. We still haven't the, – the, the PGL is still bubbling away, isn't it, which is all Saudi money. There's no mm. guarantee that that's not going to happen. They've gone quiet, but that's almost eerie in a way. There's certainly been no suggestion that they've gone away. So you would think that those talks are ongoing. That doesn't plug well into the broader image of golf either, does it, Logue? Uh, Top golfers going to Saudi, the kingdom, to play. No. And well, Paul Casey, just coming back to Paul Casey, he, he faced a fair bit of criticism this week and he was just like a deer in the headlights, it seemed. I thought he was terribly underprepared. <laughs> mm. You'd think he could have at least read that homepage on the Amnesty International he website. He didn't seem to expect to a question about on it. it. He didn't. He, no. he, it's, he seemed like he expected he was just going to say, look, I've done a lot of research and thought about it, now I'm okay with it, and expected that nobody would then question him any further on it. 
That's yeah. what it looked like. That's what it, yeah, it did. He had a prepared answer, but it was a woefully unprepared mm. answer. Um, but is his hypocrisy on this issue any worse than players who are just completely silent on it and just go over and play? I don't, I don't know. You're grading on a curve, aren't you, I suppose? Yeah. And let's be honest, we're all hypocrites in one way or another. You know, Casey, Huggy, what was your take on what happened there? Well, I, I was listening into his, and I wrote about it. I, I basically, um, in writing about it, I, I basically just let him speak um, because I felt that, People would make up their own minds listening to what he had to say. The, the, the most kind of amusing part of it, if you can call it that, of what he said was that he he, he announced that he'd been reading about the issues mm. and, and thinking about them over the past twelve months, and had come to the conclusion that he was he was dead wrong in, in saying what he did a year ago, and that he would never go. I, I, at that point, I was screaming to myself, what is it that you've been reading mm, that, that right. would change your mind on this? I mean, that if, what could we possibly have seen in print that would move him from, I'll never go there, to, yeah, it's fine, yeah. no problem. I mean, really, <laughs> I'd love to read that, I mean, just for interest. Yeah, well, it would be would be fun to have that link, wouldn't it, to see? Because uh, I'm sure there's, there must be plenty of positive spun stuff out there available on the net well there's a podcast about saudi golf apparently some some people just just don't care i mean uh one journalist i was having to go back and forth on twitter just 24 hours ago about this he was actually there not lucky and he was saying well you you should come you should come and have a look and see for yourself and you that will change your mind and i thought ridiculous notion that is i mean can you but Anybody does anybody really believe that any of the journalists who've been there over the last three years have seen anything other than the airport, the road to the golf course, the hotel at the golf course, and the golf course? I mean, have they been given a tour of the the, the local prisons to talk to some of these women that have been locked up? And no, of course not. I mean, it's a ridiculous notion to to even argue that. But but that's the kind of stuff that's going on, unfortunately. Yeah. More than that, though, you wouldn't be free to go wandering. I wouldn't imagine. Uh, no, out of the exactly. golf course and go looking for those stories should you want to, which is the difference between – I mean, we have human rights abuses here in Australia and in mm-hmm. the States and the UK as well. The difference being if you go to the Open or the Masters, you're quite free to walk down the street and go and have a look and a talk to local people about what you know, life is really like. And there's there's a very important difference and distinction there. You're right, being coddled by the, the government people, the handlers uh, at the golf course and between the hotel. You're absolutely right, Huggy. That's the difference. Um and it's a the players obviously don't feel free to question if they wanted to even I don't feel free to question goings on in the kingdom whilst they're there. So yeah, I, I do know of one player, um, European tour player, whose name I should probably not mention, um, just because it it was done in a private conversation with me. But it, I know one player did pull out from the tournament last week because he'd gone last year, and he, as in the message he sent me, he says, my, my conscience mm. wouldn't allow me to go back, so he didn't. So good for him. Absolutely. Look, I imagine there are others as well, and they probably don't necessarily mm. yeah, make a, sure. an issue of it. As Meg McLaren last year didn't go, and she wasn't going to say anything about it until James Corrigan very, very uh, – very smartly, to his credit, noticed she wasn't in the field and rang her up and asked her about it. Well, she couldn't lie, could she? So she had to say she wasn't going because uh, she, you know, she had issues. That, you know, she, her conscience wouldn't let her. So anyway, we'll move on from there. Jack, but, well, Jack Nicholas is uh, all in. Yeah, he's, well. he's building a golf building course. Can't wait. Building a golf course. Yeah, we'll leave Huggy in his snowbound state for just a moment and turn our attention back to those who can actually get out on course. And for those people. 
the news is all good because it's end of season sale time at thegolfsociety.com.au. That means up to 50% off a whole range of products, including shoes from Under Armour and Puma, apparel from the likes of Travis Matthew, Polo Ralph Lauren and Jay Lindeberg, and accessories from across all brands as well. That's thegolfsociety.com.au and get a further 20% off just for being a talking Golf listener. Add the code TG at checkout, thegolfsociety.com.au. Now, back to John Huggan. Just on, I mean, this might work into another topic for you, Rod, but... Um does does Jack Nicholas's recent statements on various matters invalidate things like you know his position on the ball? Oh, now that's interesting. Can you be can you be <laughs> wrong about one thing and right about another, Huggy? You absolutely can. But it just with the with the Ooh. equipment debate, there is this argument from authority that's always used, and to me, it's a logical fallacy that mm. you just say, "Oh, because Jack said this and and Tiger says this, then it must be so." But that's just. The, the, their really word doesn't it, necessarily carry that no, much weight, it. but it is an argument that's used a lot on you know on the rollback side. But mm, not sure about that. I think it uses support. What do you reckon, Huggy? Has, has Jack lost a bit of his luster? Certainly, his comments about Trump damaged his brand, as they like to say. I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm sure it came. It's no surprise to you guys, as to me, that, that Jack Nicholas was uh, a Republican voter. I mean, that's an almost you know everybody on the PGA Tour Even, votes Republican. It? Yeah. Yeah. But there's a difference between that and, and being so outspoken in support of a complete scoundrel like Donald Trump. I mean, th- you have to separate those two. And that, that was where he, he kind of lost me. I mean, I, I have absolutely no problem with Jack Nicholas voting for whoever he wants to vote for. That's that's uh, democracy. But uh, Donald Trump, I mean, really? I mean, it, it beggared belief. And it, it did. I mean, you kind of have to separate this kind of underlines the notion that you have to separate the golfer from the man. I mean, nobody, I mean, Bobby Jones, maybe, um, and a few others, I'm sure, but uh, have behaved with more integrity and dignity on the golf course than Jack Nicholas has, especially on the occasions when he lost. I mean, has there ever been a better loser, for want of a better phrase, than, than Jack Nicholas in golf? I mean, there's so much to admire. And I think that is what's even making us talk about this is is that he was such an icon of integrity and, and everything that's good about golf and, and which is why I wrote the column about Patrick Reed about how he'll be a great player but never a great golfer yeah. Jack Nicholas was a great golfer and a great player mm-hmm. he was everything and for him of all people to be so again so outspoken in, in favor of Donald Trump I mean it was it was just disappointing that's the best way I can put it and, and buying into the conspiracy theories about over-reporting of COVID cases so that hospitals yeah. could get funding and that, that is just, he's way outside his lane there. And that was, yeah, yeah I thought that was Yeah, good. I mean, I don't, I don't know if Rod wants me to mention this, but the, the my next um, guest on the Thing About Golf podcast is going to be Nick Price, who I talked to the other day. And I asked Nick Price that kind of question related to this. Um, when he got to world number one, I, I asked him if he if, – with the media, did he suddenly become an expert on the economy, the <laughs> raising of children, and politics? And and he kind of laughed, and he, he he just said, "Well, I I just stayed in my lane, kind of thing. I, I didn't uh, I didn't go. I stuck to the things I know." He said, which I thought was a pretty good answer. And I have no idea how Nick Price votes, so <laughs> which is as it should be. The way we should leave it. exactly. That's the way we should, we should leave it. Yeah. 
Jeff, Jeff Ogilvie, you obviously know well as well, Huggy. I remember him saying something similar to me uh, in an interview the year after his US Open when I said, you know, what's been the most surprising thing about the US Open being the US Open champion? And he said, well, apparently suddenly I know everything because I get asked about everything. So I don't, And he said, I don't know how guys like Tiger and VJ and Phil at the time, he said, I don't know how they do it. It's just, it's relentless. You get asked about stuff that you can't possibly know anything about. Your opinion's no more valid than anybody else's. But because you won the US he's Open. Fun, he, he's funny talking about the, the political bent of the, you know, the typical PGA Tour player and how far right they, they lean politically. He actually had to devise a, a strategy of coming up with a, Pay enough attention to the NFL to to be able to have a ninety second or two minute conversation with anybody he bumped into, just so that he would never have to get involved in any political chat with right. anybody. Yeah. He was able to talk NFL for two minutes and move quietly on. Yeah, indeed. You're free to mention anything you like on the podcast, are you? Because just remember, I edit everything that you that, record. That's true, both here <laughs> and at the thing about golf. So, my friend, I am ultimately and a very, in, and a very good job you make of it control. too. I'm really looking forward to that Nick Price interview. By the way, there's absolutely nothing wrong with spruiking it. It's going to be about three weeks from now before we get to hear it. Yeah. Well, I'll hear it before then, but uh, I'm really looking forward to it because he's he's a he's probably an underrated figure in the game. He doesn't get anywhere near the attention that he should, given his achievements. I don't think. I think partly that's because he walked away at a you know, relatively early stage. I mean, he'd had enough of it maybe in his early 50s. He played in the, the last time he played in the Open was 2005, which is really? quite a long time ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he's um, – I'll tell you, there was one thing, which if you talk about Nick Price just for a minute, I was talking to David Rickman, who's the chief referee at the Open, mm-hmm. has been for a few years now. Um, and the subject of Nick Price came up because I, I think it was the day before I spoke to Nick. And he says, oh, he says, you can mention this in your intro, and which would maybe, you maybe cut this out and save it for the intro. But uh, when Nick Price won the Open at Turnbury in 1994, uh, in the wake of that, he wrote a letter to Michael Benalek, who was then the, <clears throat> the secretary of the RNA, uh, you know, thanking him. And, and it was a long letter, you know, very, you know, nice letter thanking everybody involved. And and he asked Michael Benalek to copy the letter to everybody who'd been involved in the running of the Open, you know, however minor a role they'd played. So everybody got a copy of this letter, the thank you letter from Nick Price, which pretty much tells you everything you need to know about Nick Price. Yeah, indeed, genuinely uh, one of the good guys. I won't cut that out, but it'll be we'll, we'll certainly go over to him and we record our little intro yeah. for that uh, yeah. uh, as we do. Hey, what's going on with Spieth, Logue? Oh, uh, he's dropping back. Yeah, this, this you, you realise talking about Spieth in real time at this tournament will reveal how long it takes you to edit this podcast when it comes out a couple of days later. <laughs> a busy man, Logue. You could always offer to step in and help out. Oh, just... What have we been now, a year and a half? <laughs> Never been mentioned. <laughs> Can I give you a hand with that? Never heard it. Never heard the words. <laughs> uh, dear, oh dear, indeed. Like, what else has been happening in golf that we should be interested in? I've run out of interest in topics. Well, I was a little bit uh, despondent at the lack of nuance in Rory's statements about uh, oh, yeah, the, the rollback point, report. Yeah. Um, I, I think given a chance to go over it again, Rory would come up with some different words or would emphasise things differently uh, because, you know, he kind of got completely misreported what he said. Well, would he emphasise things differently or has he been – he hasn't been misquoted. Well, I, There's no I question think, about it. But I think certainly he, one of the things he said got much more press than the other. That's right. And, and I think if you could reason – if you could sit down and reason with him, he would think to himself – Oh, okay, yeah, I, look, 
I agree they had to spend some money on that stuff. Like this statement that he's made that it was a colossal waste of money and they could have put that money into growing the game and think of the children and, you know, it was the think of the children argument against rollback. And that, I think, was misguided or just hadn't – he hadn't thought that through, You've in argued. my opinion. I, I think he'd, he'd have a different opinion if you presented some facts to him. You've argued with Rory Huggy. What do you reckon about what Lowe's had to say there? Yeah, I, I was surprised too because I, I've talked to him, you know, a few times, um, just the two of us, a couple of times, just about this stuff, and he's generally been on board with uh, the way that we think about it, which doesn't make him right or wrong. It just makes him in agreement with us. But the, the thing about the, you know, the listening to the RNA and the USGA on on for these guys, I mean, the, the pros are generally pretty, you know, scathing about the they call them the amateurs in inverted commas the, the that's the kind of worst insult that they can throw at the rna and the usga but here's the thing this is what the the, the pros all forget they, they can go their own way at any time there is no law out there that says that the pga tour or the european tour or any other tour for that matter has to take their guidance on the rules of golf from the rna and the usga they can do whatever they want so why don't they well, they kind of do. Answer to, to what Rory was saying. Get on with it. If you if you think they're that bad, just go your own way. Do do what you want. So I've never understood why they don't do that. But I mean, they do that to an extent. And at least he came down in favour of bifurcation. I mean, I'm 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 certainly in favour of that because I think we've already got it. And mm. the what the the certainly America forgets, and Mike Clayton bangs on about this, and I do too, is the that we've already been the world has already been through a rollback. You know, 40 years ago when we went from the small ball to the big ball, I can remember losing about 20 yards off the tee. And it didn't, I don't remember floods of people, you know, exiting the game because they weren't having any fun anymore. So that, that argument is just nonsense. Well, that so argument's that, been completely exposed by COVID, hasn't it? Yeah. And the popularity in the game. None of well, exactly. Nobody has yeah. come to the golf course and said, look, I've just realised with COVID that you can hit the ball it's 300 yards now. <laughs> can I, I'd like to get in on this. Yeah. Um, well, space so, not hitting yeah. it that far and, you know, it's still very watchable. I, I think a lot of the argument is just you look at what's attractive about Spieth this week, and this is talking about the product of professional Not his shirt golf. today, I can tell you that much. This is a horror show. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, but the the way, you know, he's standing over the ball. In fact, he's he's talked you through the challenge that he's presented with, and you know what's at stake just because of the way he's looking at the ball, the way he's looking up, the way he's talking to Grella. And then he's standing over the ball and there's a sense that anything can happen. Uh-huh. And you only get that with approach shots. You get it a little bit with tee shots with, with Spieth as well. In fact, you get it a lot with <laughs> tee shots with yeah. Spieth. Just him watching him stand on that boring 18th tee yesterday and hoping he's not going to duck hook it into the water was fantastic. And what lines he going to take off that tee? It suddenly gave that shot all sorts of interest. Whereas Rory standing on that tee, you know he's going to pick this line hitting almost straight at the green now and uh, just bomb it over everything and nothing's in play. It's That's that's a little bit titillating for a moment, but it doesn't it, it doesn't like engage. fast food versus good restaurant food. Yeah, it there. doesn't engage on the same level as uh, the way Spieth engages, yeah. and uh, it's got nothing to do with distance. Back to the Rory thing, Huggy. It says as much about the coverage of this issue, does it not, as what people are saying, as we sort of pointed out. One thing that Rory said got enormous amounts of coverage, and the other got all got, got very, very little, which was basically he's in support of the notion of bifurcation. I think he said something along the lines of anything that makes the game harder, I'm in favour of because I think it favours the better player, and I believe I'm one of those. So the harder the game is, the more better players come to the top. That wasn't so widely reported. Golf fans and those of us following this long need to be carefully watching 
what we consume about it, don't we? Including listening to us. Uh, there's a there are multiple facets to this discussion, and you need to be, be aware of some of the narrow reporting that's going on because there are vested interests, obviously, both within the media uh, and from elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think Rory would have been would have been disappointed at the imbalance in the coverage that you just mentioned there. I think Rory's well aware of the power that mm-hmm. he wields. Um, Whenever he speaks on just about anything, I mean, it's news. I mean, he's he's at that stage, um, so he's he, and he's he knows exactly what he's about. I mean, he, people accuse him sometimes of you know speaking off the cuff and, and maybe without thinking things through sometimes. And I'm not so sure that he does. I think Rory knows exactly what he's doing when he when he says stuff on whatever subject. Um, he's he's a bright boy. I mean, I've spent enough time talking to him to realise that the, there's a brain there and. The, the only thing that I've heard and people criticise Rory because they say that he's um, he's he's not got anybody he doesn't have what every company needs, which I always refer to as the bullshit guy, the guy who turns around when they're heading down a path and goes, "Hang on a minute, that's bullshit. This is not what we should be doing. We should be doing X instead of Y." Uh, I think he, he he maybe does lack that in the people around him. I don't know for sure, but. Um, he, he he does know. I guarantee you, he knows exactly what he's doing when mm. he, when he says stuff on on these subjects. And and good luck to him. I think he he's a he's you know if you look at him over the piece, I think he, he's a he's a very good spokesman for the game. And mo- the vast majority of what he says makes sense. And good luck to him. Yeah, the, the golf world is in a better place when he's at the top of the world rankings, I think. And the same was true of Spieth because there's more to that role than just being the best player yeah. of the game. You've you, you, you got to be a good ambassador and spokesperson sort of uh, for the game. It, it must be difficult, Huggy. How do you, if you're Rory, how can you be in touch with the game that you and Logue and I know and involved. Yeah. The, the worlds are so far apart, aren't they? I mean, he started in the same place where we all sort of remain, but the circles he moves in now, it must be all, almost impossible to have a gauge. Even just, you know, you, you could play pro-ams and that sort of thing. He's not playing pro-ams with members from a local <laughs> semi-private golf course. The blokes in pro-ams on the PGA Tour tend to range from billionaires down to millionaires. There's not a lot below that. So it's a very different world, isn't it? How do you keep your feet yeah. on the ground, I wonder? Well, he's he's been a really good player for a very long time, mm. despite the fact that you think he's only thirty-one. I mean, I'm not sure whether this story's been used before or whether Tom Callahan mentioned it on the podcast we did with him. Um, but I was with Tom and Rory when we were doing a swing sequence for Golf Digest years ago. It was at the Players Championship, and it kind of started to rain. Tom was doing a kind of feature story on Rory as we were doing the swing a swing sequence out there. And it started to kind of drizzle and the, the sun disappeared. So we paused for that to pass over. And Tom was chatting to Rory. Tom had spent a year living in Belfast working on a book about the Troubles. And had said to Rory that, um, yeah, it was, I think it was 1995 or something. He'd been there or 96, whatever it was. And he said, yeah, I've been to your, you know, your jerkwater golf club at Hollywood. It's, I would have kicked your ass back then. And Rory looked at him and said, oh, I don't know about that. I was a pretty good player when I was seven. <laughs> so he's, he's well, he's, uh, he's, he's been very, very good from, obviously from a very young age. And uh, so, but yeah, Rory is, uh, he's been detached from uh, the real world, if you like, if we can call what we live in the real world yeah. in terms of golf. He's, he's been somewhere else for a long time now. No fault of his. And I think he tries to stay in touch 
with that reality too. I think there's some parts of that that he misses, as was his injury at the 2015 when he missed the Open, kicking a soccer ball around with his with his yeah. mates, which he hasn't done since, obviously. But well, in an obvious way, that was detrimental to his golf. Like he got injured, but. I think his wide range of interests is also a little bit detrimental to his golf. Without doubt. Like, he's obviously a very intelligent person, and he reads books, oh, for goodness sake. Like, like Harrington, he reads crazy yeah. books, too, not golf. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, it, but you can also see it in other sporting pursuits that he does. Like, he, he goes crazy about Peloton, and he's probably, like, I, I feel like he goes into that thinking to himself, I want to be one of the best Peloton yeah. people <laughs> in the right. world, you know. And he genuinely sort of strives for that. He's very passionate about some of these things that he gets into and it, he had a similar approach i think in the first couple of years of going to the gym where he was like mm. he was just incredibly passionate about it and it became a part of his lifestyle and you get to a point where there's just not the room for the passion for golf mm. anymore and I, I do think there's a couple of different types of players there's the incredibly talented player like McElroy who is driven by a passion and he, you know he loves the thing and we know he's he feels a lot and thinks a lot about golf. It, there's that story about him crying when he was after he'd won a mm. tournament, uh, an amateur event. Away, yeah, he wanted to give right. the game away. I feel like he's constantly driven by this passion, and uh, passion isn't necessarily the best way to success. Uh-huh. When you know you've got another player like Kepka, for example, maybe not the best example, but I don't feel like Kepka has any passion for golf at no. all. Very pragmatic, isn't he's it? very pragmatic and he's very objective driven. Yeah, and I think Kepka's slump. I'm doing a lot of amateur psychology here, but <laughs> I, th- I think Kepka's slump was driven a little bit by the fact that he just ran out of goals very briefly. Mm. Like he won a lot of stuff, and then he thought to himself, "Well, okay, I've got to sort of reset my goals now." And I think he's struggling to sort of find new goals. But he's a very objective driven person. After what he did, his next goal would have to be unfeasible, wouldn't it? <laughs> to, to get the same kind that, of driven response. That's right. I've got to win the Grand that's Slam. Right. or And Rory's Rory's performance in golf, I think, is always going to waver a little mm. bit throughout his career. He's always going to be fantastic because he's so talented, but I think his peaks are going to coincide with when he's feeling really passionate about the game and he focuses in on it. Mm. And it, it. But it takes a good sort of, you know, it takes maybe a couple of months of, to work yourself up into a passion and then you've got a peak for a certain event or something. It, it's it's a difficult way to be motivated and stay at the top the whole time. He's very he's a really interesting, intriguing character, I think. You, you wouldn't describe Tiger as passionate, would you, Huggy? That whole dominating decade and a half when he was by far and clearly the very best in the game. Passion, you wouldn't say. Passion, not a good motivator. Definitely, but not passionate, I wouldn't have thought. I think Logue's onto something. Yeah. Yeah, Tiger, I mean, I'm always loath to compare anybody to Tiger. Tiger was a complete freak, let's be honest, in in many, many ways, at least his performance levels. I mean, we were talking about Dustin Johnson earlier. I mean, you know, he's the best player right now, and he's not even close to where where Tiger was 20 years ago. I mean, that's, I think Tiger's a a once-in-a-lifetime, 10 lifetimes maybe, player. I mean, it's ridiculous to even compare anybody with him. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, this all this has been forgotten. I remember being intrigued by this at the time, Huggy, and you might remember this. Do you remember when Rory went to Haiti after the earthquake in about 2009, yes. 2010? And he yeah. came back and that had changed his life. It wasn't long after that he won the US Open. And he was unquestionably a change that unquestionably affected him. I'm not sure that would be true necessarily of all of his peers. There's something very likable and approachable and normal about Rory in so many ways, I think. 
Uh, and that was, I thought, well, a really well, fine example. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think he, he gets a lot of it from his father or his parents, certainly, but certainly his father, who I know reasonably. People, I've maybe said this before, but people ask me, you know, well, how do you get on with Rory? And I get on fine with Rory. I mean, the, that's why I'm kind of always a wee bit loath to criticise Rory on, on anything because if you look at the big pictures, I've said that, you know, the, there's a hundred good things about Rory for every bad. I mean, that's a pretty good ratio, I think. But, but his father, I mean... I get on better with his father. I mean, his father's the same age as me, and he's got the same kind of background. And you know, he's a, he was a decent low handicap player. I mean, he and I have got a lot in common. He's I mean, the Rory, same football Rory's team. The same though. age as my son. I mean, how would I? You know, my <laughs> relationship with him is is going to be way different. Yeah. I mean, Jerry McElroy's a hell of a nice man, I think, and it is you know genuine individual. And I think Rory takes after his dad, at least in that respect. Mm. What, what's your football team, Huggy? That you support? <laughs> Hibs, no. isn't it? Hibs. And, and Jerry's also. Uh, the, the, you got him oh, no. FC. Yes. Was it? No, no. I've talked. I've, I've talked Jerry into. My wife is a director of the Four for Athletic yeah, Football for Club, Athletic. which is a like a third division of four in, in Scotland. They were just a part-time team, and Four for Athletic is now Jerry's team in Scotland, or Jerry's team. Full stop. I don't. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. And he, he he's got a Four for Athletic hat that I've given him. <laughs> um, I gave him it at the Masters uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I I promised him a hat, and I had it behind my back as I, I spotted him, and I walked up to him, and the first thing he says to me is, oh, how are you doing? Where's my hat? <laughs> at which I then produced it to, to his great glee. And Rory subsequently told me that he wears this hat <laughs> all the time. And there was a, I think it was a PG at uh, Bill Reeve, the one that Kepka won, I was. I'd been watching Rory, and I was standing in the kind of media area after he'd finished uh, with Jerry McElroy just chatting. And Rory came up behind us after he'd finished signing his card and whatnot, and said, "Oh, he says, I know what you guys will be talking about <laughs> for for Athletic, and we were." <laughs> so I've I've turned him. I don't. I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or not. <laughs> well, considering all the hats Jerry McElroy could say, be wearing, he'd he'd be wearing no a Pine Valley or yeah. Seminole or whatever he wants. <laughs> he'd have no shortage of. Uh, of hats, which brings us neatly to, and I've not yet had a chance to read it thoroughly, which brings us neatly to this Distance Insights report. Huggy, most on the rollback side, which I think we'd probably call ourselves as on the rollback side, have been surprised at some of the strong language in the RNA USGA announcement of last week, which sparked this discussion we were just talking about with Rory. Have you had yeah. a chance to read it? What's your take? I know you're yeah, tired I mean, I, of the I, USGA I, and RNA long ago on this issue. Are you back? No, no, I actually had the, the opportunity, the RNA gave me a time with Martin Slumbers and Steve Otto, who's the mad scientist guy that heads up their equipment um, side of things there. But the, the problem was that they only sent the, the, the document to me 10 minutes before I was able to talk to them. So I hardly had a chance to look at the thing. So the questions I was asking them weren't too um, intelligent, I don't think. Maybe a bit of a waste of their time and mine, but um, they the the thing that came across to me is that Slumber, Slumbers is the driving force in this. He, he wants something to be done about this. He, Slumbers is a low handicap golfer. He gets it. He, and I think he's even stronger on the subject than Peter Dawson was before. I mean, behind the scenes, uh, Dawson got it too, but he wasn't, they never say so publicly because they can't. But uh, I, I, my feeling is that Martin Slumbers is, uh, is going to be an important figure in this going forward. And, uh, I, I've got high hopes that, that that something's going to happen. I mean, this this local rule thing that they've 
that was high up in the in the document. I mean, it was really emphasised strongly. I mean, that is basically a a charter for bifurcation. It's code code that's, bifurcation. That's, yeah, and I my feeling is that um, the majors are going to be the ones that are going to be the the catalyst for this. They're going to jump first if anybody does. Well, three of the and four the two, you would think are guaranteed. Yes, aren't you? the two yeah, open and the, the masters. The PGA might not. Yeah, mm. but the and then the tours can make up their own minds. I mean the. Do the two well the tours or will the players want to be jumping back and forward between different equipment specs on the tour to playing in the major and then back again? I mean, who knows how that would work? But um, I think something's going to happen this time. I really do. Is this the pivotal moment that we've been waiting for, Huggy? Well, I hope so. Yeah, and as I say, just for the reasons I gave you, I think that they've they've basically. The RNA and the USGA, who, who run two of the majors, the two the two biggest ones, I would argue, they've basically handed themselves an opportunity to say to the players, "Well, you can come and play, but here's the the ball here's and the, the deal. club specs that you're going to have to use if you if you want to play in our majors." And that's a huge step forward. The the language load, both this time around and well, we were supposed to get 2020, then COVID happened, but the, the insights report from the, the previous year, the language is a lot stronger than we've seen and we traditionally see from the RNA and the USGA. It does feel like they're serious about this, do you think? Yeah, and it has some concrete proposals in there now as well, which it didn't before. And it's much more broad-ranging. It's it's a lot less. The, the one we saw last year was sort of casting a net and saying, here's what we think. Here's the flag up the pole. What's the yeah. reaction? Can we get some ideas? Now, this one is actually pushing some ideas, and it's good to see that it's to do with uh, club specifications as well as ball specifications. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're, they're looking at everything, but they're actually making some concrete proposals there as well. And they'll need the cooperation of the equipment companies to do testing and, you know, work out what works and, you know, what is practically going to actually uh, produce a, an upper ceiling um, to the distance because we, we know that whatever rules go in place, they'll immediately start to try and work around them. So I think it's very important that they start talking about specs, uh, which is what they're doing, and then get the equipment companies to start uh, working with them to deliver some sample equipment and, and do test do joint testing there between the two. Uh, and uh, they probably do. Like uh, Huggy just mentioned Steve Otto. Like Steve Otto is in constant contact with the equipment companies mm, like man. that that's like they they're working together on this stuff all the time people think it's it's a situation where a statement is made and then a counter statement is made it it's not like that at all behind the scenes like there there's some companies more so than others i think callaway works pretty closely with the governing bodies um but they're they're in constant communication and which is not to say there's not animosity. There. The right, they the, no, absolutely disagree. They've on, got different objectives, but the right people are talking to the right people behind the scenes, and there's a lot more going on that you don't actually see that doesn't manifest itself in those reports. Could you make the case that if the PGA Tour and the world, the professional tours of the world were sensible, this is a real opportunity in a rolled back world for the game to be extraordinarily interesting for for a real shot of interest? Who wouldn't want to watch the first tournament? With the newly regulated ball, even non-golfers are going to be drawn to that, aren't they? For sure. Yeah. There's yeah. no such. There's no bad publicity, is yeah. there? No. And but what's the downside from a spectacle point of view on on the TV? It just like some stat that flashes up on screen briefly goes saw, from being you saw the grid, the video game grid with the yeah. So the little numbers next to that stupid grid go from being three forty to being 
you know, 300 or something. You know, that, that is, is the upper range. Mm. Um, that, that's wishful thinking, perhaps. But this is, it, the issue is complicated, isn't it, Huggy? Because there's not a direct correlation between what Logue's talking about there and why the manufacturers are so intent on selling the notion of distance. It's because distance sells. So the, the role of the professional game is to showcase what they can do with their technology, but to then sell it to you and me, that's what it's all about. The golf ball market globally is worth in the billions every year. It's money worth fighting about, isn't it? That's why they're so hell-bent on this notion of not restricting technology or not further restricting technology. It's not a simple linear discussion, is it, of, you know, the pros hit it too far, we should stop that. There's a lot more to it. Well, it's the old adage of, you know, people, especially older people, they're, they're afraid of change. I mean, I, years ago, I had a long discussion with Wally Uline at, uh, at the Masters over an hour of back and forth on this subject. And, and that was what came across to me. And I, I actually challenged him on it. I said, Wally, I, I'd, I've never understood that argument because, you know, I've, I've played Titleist golf balls just about my whole life because Titleist make, in my mind, the best ball. And if there's a rollback or whatever changes, you know, to the specs and all the rest of it, nothing's going to change my mind about what ball I'm going to play. And I've never really understood that their fear, but the, but that but you know they do fear that for whether I understand it or not. That that's what's behind the you know the equipment's uh, manufacturers' resistance, or a lot of it is. But the, and again, though, the, <laughs> it always makes me laugh when it, you know, as you just said, that they they promote distance and they sell it through the a lot of it through the way the professionals and how far the professionals hit their drives. But the, the harsh truth is, Rod, that the, for the rest of us. It doesn't really make that much difference. No. It really doesn't. I mean, for the vast majority of people, their techniques are so bad they they can't turn, they can't do that. They're, they're just you know they're, they're physically not as gifted as certainly as the pros, and it it might make two or three yards of a difference. You know, certainly the the big metal drivers make a difference because you can hit it. You don't have to hit the, anywhere like the the sweet spot to hit a halfway decent drive. But that's about the only benefit. The, you know, they might lose or gain, you know, three, four yards. Now, if you can tell me, spot the difference between a drive that goes, your average drive is going 194 instead of 190, uh, you're a better man than me. I mean, that, that just doesn't compute. Yeah. So uh, the, the whole thing just is slightly amusing to me because the public are, you know, they're, they're gullible enough to swallow half of that nonsense well, they, i mean we want to don't know, we as huggy we've well, exactly it. we've yeah, always yeah, done but, <laughs> yeah it's it, I, and i don't you know belittle the people for for ambition but the the, rea- the reality is it's really not going to make that much difference if you've ever if you if your predominant enjoyment from the game of the game comes from your scoring go and read golf is not a game of perfect by bob rotella and the story about the college team playing with tom kite and they would all hit their tee shots, and then they'd go down there, and they would hit their second, and Kite would hit his second. So he would just play from their tee shots effectively. And he he towed them up by about ten shots. Yeah, yeah. the the money isn't made, and the scores aren't made by hitting at two forty instead of two thirty. You know, you've, it's just not how the game actually works. Now, at the very top level, we have seen a shift in there because of the way the driver allows them to swing so far. And the truth now is, three hundred is average, three hundred yards. So the, the, what you need to think about there then is what does that mean for the footprint of the game? If the game is going to remain interesting, if the average tee shot is 300 yards, then the average hole has to increase in distance to maintain that element of interest. And we see a lot of 
life, lifelong golf fans publicly turning away from me and saying, I don't watch it anymore. It's boring. It's too boring. Driver wedge is boring. I want, I want to see guys, you know, do different things with the way because they're all skilled enough, aren't they, Huggy? Nobody is saying that, you know, Rory McIlroy doesn't have the skills of Greg Norman or Jack Nicholas. Yeah. We all know and nobody's what they blaming could. their athleticism no. either. I, I, that, that's one thing I just don't get is this constant sort of like, oh, you're, 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 handcuffing bla- you're blaming us because yeah. of our athleticism, our improved athleticism. No, I mean, that's great. You, it's fan- fantastic that you've, you've you know, maximised your physical potential there or, you know, and, look, and looking for further enhancements there. It's just you can't roll that back. You can't roll back physicality. That's right. Just let that go. Like, you know, fantastic. That's a great way to find gains. Um, But, you know, we physically can't roll that back. You can roll back the equipment. So if you're going to do something about it, it's the only thing you can do. We made a mistake. uh, Sorry, I was just going to say another part of the problem, of course, and we as a a group of the media are probably least partly responsible for this, is that that we keep asking the the, the leading professionals for their opinions (laughs) on all of this. And their opinions mean absolute squat because they're, to a man, being paid by the equipment companies to to trot out the party line. So why we we take anything they say remotely seriously on this subject is a bit of a mystery to me. I'll say one thing about that. I'm not necessarily convinced that that's 100% true. I do think it's true in some cases, or perhaps more likely, rather than just trotting out a company line, that you had players who've taken their advice about this, who haven't done... Webb Simpson is the the poster child for this. He's clearly yes. never read a book on golf course architecture and has no interest in the subject. So all of the information he has has come from, most likely, manufacturers and those who support the industry of golf. So I'm not sure that it's as simple as Titleist pays me, therefore I'll say what Titleist wants me to say. I don't think it's that simple. I don't, Webb believes what he said last week, which oh, is you can frightening. Tell he, legitimately, he generally believes it. Assertively, he said yeah. it. And, and that's the thing that I As does I Ernie Els, sorry. Uh, disappointingly, Huggy. As mm, does Ernie Els. Well, just I look know. at what he's done to Wentworth. Mm. I think the, the, maybe we should just clarify is that my, my view is that most of the players, they, they're allowed to go so far on this subject if they disagree with the equipment manufacturers. But they're, yeah. once they, they go, they reach a certain point, there are things that they simply are not allowed to say because the equipment manufacturers are not going to like it. It's going to cost them money to say yeah. certain things. So they don't. Yeah, indeed. It's a And it's a complicated issue. And this is where it brings me back to this notion of what you're consuming about this subject and what you're reading. That's also true of golf media. Television, radio, print, podcasts all have a vested interest. Most have some form of income that comes from the manufacturers. And so that's not an easy position to be in as a journal or a golf writer or the editor of a publication because there may be different pressures. And I'm glad I'm not in that position. (laughs) I'll be honest with you because that, uh, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, That stuff I find fine. The thing I found offensive about Webb was just his certainty, what he was saying that don't know what you don't know, (laughs) like the complete lack of, uh, self-awareness that, you know, Oh, maybe I'm not actually as well educated on this as I think. I'm just stuff that. I'm just going to say this assertively as I think, as if it's a you know it's a fact. Yeah, mm. That's extraordinarily one-dimensional view, but it's pretty common, Huggy. I've had multiple conversations with club members who are on committees and in positions of authority, making decisions about changes to golf courses, and you ask them. Well, I asked one guy, my club, what's you, what's the best golf course in the world? And he said, I don't know. Is it St Andrews? And I said, Have you have you read a book about court? No. 
you know, there's but no. Hmm. But you, well, yeah, you, you want to just change it's an your incredible, yeah, incredible level of ignorance out there. I mean, that, that's yeah, always a, been the. It's I mean, and, uh, and I, for a long time, I was part of that. I mean, I've maybe said this to you before. I certainly said it to Mike Clayton for for when I, when I was playing halfway decent amateur golf a long time ago now. But I knew nothing about this subject. I mean, I I I'd, I'd read nothing. I did. I'd really no interest in it. But but I instinctively through it, through all of that, I knew what I liked. I knew what I didn't like in terms of courses, but I'd never taken the trouble to sit down and think about how I would articulate mm. why I didn't like something or why I did like something. You know, the especially Lynx golf. Yeah, I, mean, that, well, that's, well, I grew that's up right. a, playing well, Lynx golf, and I'd never really thought about well, why is this the best form of golf? And now I've you know I've written about it many times and and articulated it many times, but back then. I didn't care about that. I was too involved in my own golf, yeah. and that's 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 where the line is. People, golfers are selfish. It's an old cliche, but that's it's certainly true when it comes to architecture. Well, I, I think it's they want, it's they? true of almost any subject that it's difficult for somebody to work it out for themselves. Like you, you might get little snippets of like, oh, I love this hole, and I'm not quite sure why mm. I love this hole. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you can't. It's it's difficult to go from that to actually working it out all on your own. Um, which makes the the minds that do work that stuff out all the more remarkable. And important. But I think for most people, the threshold is just read just one book or just read one article by Mike Clayton or something. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, and then there's a there's some criteria there that you can start to to measure what you see against. And because ultimately, you just need that just... little push to yeah. form a, form your own opinions from that point. But um, just to sort of make you aware of that. Because ultimately, the dis- dis- this distance discussion is not about golf. It's about golf courses and the role of golf courses in it all. It wouldn't matter how far blokes hit it if golf courses were all the same. If the game was played at driving ranges or top golf where the goal was just to hit it as far as you could or long drive competitions, that's what they're all about, then it would have no impact. But the fact is that golf is played on golf courses, Huggy, and it's the golf courses that we need to think about because they're crucial to the to the interest of the game. And in the long term, this is, you, you said it ages ago, like the most frightening word to the PGA Tour should be boring. Mm. As soon as people start to say it's boring, mm. they're, they're an entertainment product, and you can't be a boring entertainment product because that just doesn't work. So, yeah. so it's kind of in their interest to engage in this. You don't feel like we're going to get that from the regime that's in place at the moment, though. Jay Monahan and sports betting. I mean, I, I think if the... If the modern fans and modern players had the opportunity to study or took the time to study the game as it was, you know, 35 years ago or whatever, and watched enough of that to to start to realise how much more entertaining Mm. it was at that point, when it was a, as Mike Clayton always says, it was a fair fight between the equipment and the courses, um, that the game... You could you could make a strong argument that that's when the game peaked, peaked, yeah, and, it, and it's and it's on the way down. It's been heading downwards since then. You've, and you've played Lowe's like, game, haven't you? The, yeah, where, where, where was the, the epoch yeah, of golf? The equipment, yeah, the courses, yeah. and the players the, all the came perfect, together. The perfect melding of course equipment and a, and a great field, and yeah. Yeah. you know, great and well, stars. I, I, and I would argue Muirfield, nineteen seventy-two, yeah. the Open. Yeah, in fact, I think you said that last time too. So. Well, Oh, did we ask did that well, last time? Oh, I've put this to Huggy before because I remember being impressed I, with his well, recall. I, I'm just thinking uh, that's that's probably an excellent choice, Huggy. Um, but I'm thinking with Royal St. George's this year, everyone should go back and have a look at the Sandy Lyle win at Royal St. George's mm. because that yep. was a fantastic yep. tournament. And the, the course was beautifully baked out. It's Like Huggy said, it's not everyone's favourite open road or venue, but 
um, on that on that day, it was the day four. There was pretty windy and wild and baked out, and you had Langer. David Graham played remarkably well, and Sandy Lyle um, showed a lot of guts to win there. Is so that the year Harwood was really down the, the bunker on the fourth? Hit his own ball and got <laughs> punished. Do you remember that huggy? <laughs> Mm, the the big hit, bunker on the right-hand side of the fourth hole, yeah. Well, yeah, the big one you got here, I think Harwood hit it into the top of that, and he had all sorts yeah, of trouble getting up there. High. That's right, yeah. and then he, I think he, did he slip or fall, fell back down and hit his ball? Yeah, that's, that's been done before. That's A few guys have done that, you know, and you have to, you know, there was, I think it was, how many penalty shots does that involve? <laughs> the, the Clayton <laughs> but, question. Uh, how many penalty yeah. shots is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. One. <laughs> one, that's right. It all added up to one, which I think he was, he, he almost felt bad about. Figured that there should have been at least one more just for being an idiot. <laughs> I think he. I think he then said that he should have had the honour on the next tee. <laughs> yeah, it, well, the other guys missed their putts because they were laughing so yeah, much. Exactly, they were. They both three putted. The other two guys. Yeah. Uh, outstanding stuff. Okay, I've just realised how long we've been at this. I don't think I've missed anything. Have I missed anything from you, Lowe? Uh No, no, that's good. I think we covered it all. Yeah. Huggy, did I miss anything from you? Anybody we've missed there? Uh, no, Huggy's favourite week of the year with have waste a look management. See how Jordan Spieth's doing? And- yeah, don't rush. <laughs> it's uh, no. Not too well, I don't think. Well, it's not as well right no. now. This will give us give you the time. He's at six. Actually, I'll tell you what. He's only one behind again. False is false speed oh, is doing pretty well. Carlos Ortiz. Yeah, they're all. Yeah, that's right. False well, speed. He's in the Fo- clubhouse. Speeth. So the number's been posted. Seventeen's the number at the moment, and speed is at sixteen through thirteen holes. So he's not. You're not out of it. This is a yeah. This is fascinating. We'll go and watch. Must the be fascinating that. for the listeners who yeah. <laughs> already yeah, know the who this is two days old news. Yeah, you've got to love desert golf, isn't it? Fun? Yeah. <laughs> is this the course? Just quickly, is this the course where they film the mash opener with the helicopters coming over the mountains, or is it a no, different that, desert? No, that's the one that uh, that played, Tiger's event was played there for years and years. It's just north of Los Angeles. The Sherwood, Sherwood, is it? Yeah, the Sherwood. Sherwood yeah, because yeah. I've been there a few times and I've seen that skyline. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of Marsh. Oh, so I was not. I was looking for that. It was, of course you it are. was, um, yeah, it was, yeah. That's exactly what it is. Alan Alder does a fabulous podcast. If you're interested, by the way, Huggy as well. Yeah, really interesting mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, very good. All right, that's enough. Thank you, Huggy. Most enjoyable, mate. Always great to catch up. And looking forward to, as I'm sure everybody else is now, Nick Price on the thing about golf. Mm. But going with yes. Laura Davies first. She's fabulous. Yes, I, I enjoyed my chat with him. I, I go back a long way with Nick. I was his I was his ghostwriter. Oh wow! And his instruction articles for a few years when uh, he was attached to Golf Digest, and I was the the instruction guy there. So Just remind people was, how much you improved the games of Digest yeah, readers yeah, over that time. That. Well, I arrived at Golf Digest in America in 1988, and at that time, apparently, the the average handicap of the average reader was 17.8, and I left eight years later in 1996 when the average handicap of the average reader was 17.8. Well, at least you, at least you, the first rule, Huggy, you did no harm. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been yeah. worse. It was a, a lost cause. Great to catch up today, mate. Thanks very much for the chat. Enjoyed it. My pleasure. And Logue, always good to uh, catch up with you, mate. And thanks for bringing your phone and the attachment to the thing so we could watch the golf. Yeah, we'll, no, uh, thanks. We'll we can turn the volume up now. And turn the volume up. And the last few holes. Well, not too loud because I've got to get cracking on the editing, obviously, because <laughs> we don't like to ramp the phone. <laughs> episode 63 of Good Good, Done and Dusted. We'll be back next week with episode 64 here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.